When you were a kid, some of you still are, do you ever have any rules from your parents or your teachers that you didn't understand or you didn't like? I think I've told you about this before, but my parents had a rule that I was not allowed to put up any posters of athletes or celebrities on the wall of my room. I was a huge Michael Jordan fan. I still wear Jordans around town to this day. Uh, but although I had a Chicago Bulls poster hanging on my wall, I had Bulls gear, I had MJ trading cards, I did not have any MJ posters. And there were some good ones too, if you remember, whether it was the wingspan poster, right, with him holding the ball in each hand, or whether it was this hang in the air photo from the slam dunk contest or whatever, I thought that my parents' rule was really dumb. But you know, as I look back, I, I can see where they were coming from, right? They wanted me to, ch to cheer for sports teams, but not idolize any person. They wanted Jesus to have my heart, not MJ. I hope my kids will have a similar posture one day toward our rules for them. For instance, you know, they might not understand right now why we won't let them hang out alone in their friends' homes whose families we don't know very well. But I trust one day they will understand. Canaan might not get why we don't let him roam the neighborhood solo. But one day he'll get it, right? Because they're not just rules for rules' sake. They're rules for our kids' safety, for their good. And yet here's the thing about rules. They function in a lot of different ways in our lives, don't they? For instance, <laughs> our rules kind of function like a threat over my kids' lives, right? Should they choose to break them? Like if Canaan decides to gallivant around the neighborhood by himself, friends, he should be ready to meet the demands of justice upon his return. And in fact, rules have a tendency to spark a desire in our hearts to break them. Honestly, just for kicks and giggles. Rules create a whole host of temptations in our hearts just because they're there in place. The rules are good. But the way that my kids interact with them, well, not always so good. Friends, this is the very topic that the Apostle Paul turns to in Romans chapter 7. So would you turn there in your Bibles this morning? Romans 7, it's on page 943 of the black Bible underneath your seat. Now, friends, I've been told that the 100 new Bibles that we uh, got a few weeks ago are not the same Bible as we had. That was news to me. So uh, I am sorry about that. So the, the little smaller Bible that we have, I have no clue what the page number is. We'll rectify the situation. A hundred more Bibles are on the way. They'll all be the same here very soon. I'm sorry about that. All right, friends, although we're looking at a new chapter of Romans this morning, it's very much a continuation of Paul's argument that he began in chapter 6, that through the work of Christ, we Christians haven't merely received a new legal status in the forgiveness of our sins, we've received entirely new existence as we press on for eternal glory. It's not merely that the penalty of our sin has been paid through Christ's death, its power over us has been broken. We are a, a new creation because we're united by faith to our resurrected king. Now, before we read our passage in, in Romans 7, let me kind of tee up Paul's argument a bit for you so that you can understand why Romans 7 is even necessary in Paul's thinking. Friends, I think what Paul is doing is responding to how a Jew might object to what he wrote 
in verse 14 of chapter 6 about the law. And really a lot of what Paul has written thus far in Romans about the law. Remember that Paul wrote to unify Jewish and Gentile believers in the churches in Rome for the sake of gospel mission. So it's possible that the vestiges of of the old way of thinking in Judaism was kind of still hanging on for dear life among some of the Jewish believers in those churches. Or it may be that the Jews were attacking the gospel in Rome, and so Paul's giving them some ammo to defend against the false teaching there. In Romans 6.14, Paul wrote, for sin will not, uh, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, we don't just continue on in sin because we're no longer under the law. Grace isn't a, a hall pass God gives us to sin. Grace is God's power not to sin. Why? Because we belong to a new master. But notice what verse 14 implies if the converse were true. What if we were still under the law? What would be the situation then? Paul says clearly sin would still be exercising its tyrannical dominion in our lives. Do you see that? To be under the law is still to be under sin's power. Now friends, that idea right there, that to be under the law is to be under sin, would have shocked the Jews' system. It flew in the face of everything they believed to be true about God's law. In fact, there was a proverb in Judaism, the more Torah, the more life. That was the standard Jewish view. God gave us the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. He intends for us to live by it. And so to be under the law is not bad at all. It's really, really good to be under the law. What you're saying, Paul, is deeply offensive and wrong. What Paul does in Romans 7 It's just upend that way of thinking. Okay, let's read together. We're going to read the first 12 verses this morning. We'll tackle the rest of the chapter next week. Let's start in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were still living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? Oh, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, there's just no question that the point Paul is hammering home is all about the law. He mentions the law in one way or another 21 times in those 12 verses we just read. He wants us to understand that because sin's power over us has been broken, so has the law's authority over us. Friends, that's really the main idea this morning that we're going to see from this text. The main idea of the text, that's the main idea of the sermon. Because your relationship to sin radically changed when you became a Christian, so did your relationship to the law. Because your relationship, Christian, radically changed when you came to Christ, so did your relationship to the law. Friends, again, remember the rebuttal of the Jews that Paul is anticipating here. They would have argued something like, you're saying that we're not under the law, Paul, but how could that be? How could that be the case since God gave us the law? So Paul kind of swats away that objection in verses 1 to 6. He essentially says, you're not bound to the law. You belong to Christ. That's point one. Okay? The main points today just kind of summarize each of these sections. You're not bound to the law. Why? Because you belong to Christ. The second objection that the Jews locked and loaded for Paul was that, you know, if if Paul was saying that Christians are no longer under the law, well, that must mean he thinks the law is bad, right? And that sounds blasphemous since God is good and it's his law. And so Paul argues this way in verses 7 to 12. The law isn't the problem. Your sin is. The law isn't the problem. Your sin is. You're not bound to the law. You belong to Christ. The law isn't the problem. Your sin is. Now, friends, I suspect that this entire topic of a Christian's relationship to the law may seem a bit archaic, maybe a little mundane to you this morning, like it's like kind of a nuanced theological discussion that Paul needed to have with the Jews back in the day, but it's really not relevant for us today. But beloved, the reality is far from that. In fact, I hope we'll see this morning that because we're no longer under the law, that is really good news for you. The way to get to God, the way to live for God, isn't by keeping a set of rules, but by trusting in the one who kept God's rules for us. Let's look at this first point. You're not bound to the law. You belong to Christ. Look at verse 1, and let's trace out Paul's argument. He states the principle of the whole thing in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now, friends, Paul kind of starts out here with a jab, not an uppercut. He'll give the uppercut in verse 4, but here he just wants his opponents to understand that there there is a category of people alive today (laughs) to whom the law doesn't apply. And what is that category? Dead people. Now, that seems a little bit strange that he's talking about folks that are alive that are dead, but we're going to understand what he says here in a second. The law of Moses binds a person to obey it only while that person is alive. When a person dies, the binding authority of the law dies with him or 
her. Now, friends, we know this to be true just in our, the laws of our land, don't we? For instance, if detectives resurrect a cold case with new evidence about who committed a murder, but the perpetrator is dead, they don't put that guy on trial, even though he's guilty. Why? He's dead. The law does not apply to him anymore. That's what Paul is saying in relation to the law of Moses. It only applies while the person is living. Now, if you've been tracking Paul's argument since the beginning of chapter 6, friends, you, you can kind of anticipate where he's going with this, right? The architecture of the argument should make sense to you. Why? Because Paul is making a union with Christ argument. That's where he'll land in verse 4. When we trust in Christ to save us, the Spirit of God unites us spiritually into this vital, intimate relationship with Christ so that what's true of Christ becomes true of us. Just like, again, what's true of the trunk of a tree is also true of the branches. Friends, when Christ died for our sin, we died to our sin. When Christ was buried, our sin was put there in the grave with Him. And when He rose, when he rose we rose with Him to walk in newness of life spiritually. And we await the day when our bodies will be raised from the grave to live eternally with Christ in glory. Paul is saying the exact same thing here in relationship to the law. He's saying, Christians, you died to the law through the body of Christ. That's what the text says, which again, just pictures our connection to Jesus' body that was broken for us on the cross. Jesus' death satisfied the demands of our law breaking, and so we have now died to the law. But first, before he lands that uppercut, I've kind of already given it away, right? In verses 2 to 3, Paul illustrates the principle of verse 1, that the law is binding only as long as the person under it is living. Okay, He essentially says this, you know that this principle is true, just consider the law of marriage. Verse 2, for if a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, now friends, our society thinks that it's as, you know, that it's okay to get out of a marriage just as easily as you get into one. But that is not at all how God has designed it, is it? Marriage is designed by God to be permanent. Marriage vows promise exclusive, loyal love until we are parted by death. It is always mind-blowing to me that each time I officiate a, a wedding ceremony, that in the very moment I utter the words, I now pronounce you man and wife, God fuses together a permanent covenant union. There's a law that now governs that relationship. There, there was no such law in their dating and engagement life. Either party was free to break things off at will. But friends, once that law is in place, it's an until death commitment. The law binding the marriage together dissolves only when a spouse dies. You know, a widowed spouse may continue to wear his or her wedding ring as a, a tribute to their deceased spouse, but that doesn't mean that the, the law of marriage is still in place. As Paul says, when the husband dies, the wife is released from the law of marriage and free to remarry. We know this to be true. But if a woman runs off with another man while the law of marriage still binds her, well, she's committed adultery. Now, you might think to yourself, okay, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Okay, 
John, I was here for your sermon just a few months back in Matthew 19, where you talked about biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. Is Paul contradicting Jesus, right? It doesn't seem like he's leaving much wiggle room here for how a marriage dissolves. You're right, but that's not Paul's point. That's just not his point. Paul isn't trying here to discuss the complexities of divorce and remarriage. All he's doing is being a good teacher. He's using an easily understood analogy to help communicate an abstract principle with crystal clarity. A law is in place only as long as the person it applies to is living, okay? So Paul, <laughs> Paul's jabs now help him set up the uppercut in verse four. Here's the massive point that decks the Jews' argument that everyone is still under the law. Verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul's saying, listen, the, the, the law of Moses is no longer an authoritative binding law over the Christian because he or she has died to the law through the death and resurrection of Christ. You see, friends, there's only one person who's ever lived under the law and succeeded. You understand that, right? Adam, in the beginning, didn't have a sin nature in the very beginning. God gave him a will that was free to choose allegiance to God or rebellion against him, and Adam chose the latter. God gave him one law, as it were, and Adam trespassed over it. Israel lived under God's gracious law given to them at Sinai. But Israel's history was a litany of failure after failure after failure. They were exiled from the land for their refusal to live under the law and keep the command, just like Adam was exiled from the garden. Living under the law brought death to Adam and death to Israel, and it brings death to every one of us because not one of us can keep the law perfectly. Friends, you can try your best. You can muster up all your spiritual energy, but you will never be able to keep God's law perfectly. To disobey just one command of God's law is to break the entire thing and place yourself under the eternal curse for breaking it. Just like my kids, just my, like my kids react to my rule as a parent, we sinners are predisposed to law breaking. It's just what we do. Praise be to God. There is one who lived under the law successfully. The Lord Jesus Christ, born of woman, Paul wrote in Galatians, born under the law, came to redeem those under the law. He is the true and better Adam, as we sing, come to save the hell-bound man. He kept the law of the Lord flawlessly. And then he died on the cross to bear the demands of the law's eternal penalty for all who would trust in him. Friends, because the law stands over us in judgment, friends, it stood in judgment over Christ on the cross, not for his own trespasses, but for ours. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. And in a moment, the law's condemning power was nullified in relation to Jesus because Jesus never broke the law. Death couldn't hold Jesus because Jesus was innocent. His resurrection proves that the curse has been broken and every demand of the law has been satisfied and nullified for all who would repent of their sin and trust in Christ to save. 
Friends, this is Paul's argument. Under sin, the law held us captive. It enslaved us and it consigned us to hell because of our inability to keep it. But along came Jesus. Along came the Son of God and Son of Man who kept the law and then took our condemnation so that we now are free. When Christ died under the law to pay its demands, we died to the law and are no longer under its demands. Christ took our curse. So do you see how silly of an argument it is that the Jews were making? How foolish it is for you to think that keeping God's law or any moral code even of your own making will somehow turn out for your salvation. Paul says that's like winding the clock back to before the cross. That's the place yourself under this old era where sin and death reigns. It makes no sense. And taking aim at the Jews who would try to live by the law, Paul is also taking dead aim at anyone who thinks that eternal life is gained by keeping a set of rules, that salvation is about my morality and my ability to live as a good person. And you realize this, right? Like every major world religion, except for Christianity, is some version of that. I do. I achieve. I perform. I take the sacraments. I follow the rules of my religion, and my God rewards me for that effort, every single one of them. The prosperity heresy, this false version of Christianity, promises just have enough faith, and God will reward you with health and wealth and happiness. God's like the heavenly vending machine. Just deposit the right coin of faith, and out pops a blessing for our obedience. Friends, even if you're in the nuns category, you don't consider yourself religious. My guess is that you seek to leave, live by some sort of moral code of your own making. You try to be a good person as best as you can be. I hope that is true of you, I guess, in your unbelieving state. What you hope is that the laws of the universe or, or karma or luck will kind of turn that code keeping and those nice gestures around for good things in your life. But friends, in these verses, Paul blasts a heat-seeking missile that annihilates that type of thinking. Not only does living under the law not save us, living under the law is part of what keeps us in bondage to sin. And I beg of you, don't make that mistake. Christianity is not about keeping the rules to be saved. It's about trusting in the one who did. It's about following the one who bore your curse and relying on him to take you safely into eternity. Back to the text. What is the reason Paul gives that believers have died with Christ to the law? Look at verse 4. Why did it happen? It happened so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. In other words, through the death and resurrection of Christ, you no longer belong to your old husband, the law. You've died to him. Now you belong to your new husband, Jesus. You're, you're intimately connected to him so that all that he has won for you on the cross is yours. Now that Jesus is your husband, his perfect record of law-keeping, all yours. <laughs> Full forgiveness of your law-breaking, all yours the hope of eternal vindication instead of eternal condemnation, all yours. Beloved, this is amazing, jaw-dropping grace that we belong to Christ. Now, some of you have looked at the verse and said, wait, 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 this makes no sense, right? Because in Paul's illustration, 
the husband dies and the wife who is still alive is free to remarry. But then in the reality, the believer is like a wife who dies and then is a resurrected wife remarried a resurrected husband. Like it, <laughs> I mean, is Paul just a bad illustrator? Is he confused? Did he write this letter late at night? Right? What's going on? Well, I understand the concern, but I don't think that Paul meant to draw up this kind of one-to-one character allegory that we trace throughout verses 2 to 4. He's merely illustrating the principle of verse 1, that a law binds a person only as long as he's living. And then when he begins to apply it, he does so through the lens of union with Christ. And that kind of allows him to drop the marriage analogy for a second, but then pick it back up to help us to see that, that when Christ, our loving husband, laid down his life for us, we died with him. And therefore, to the law, having been resurrected with him to live a new life. Friends, because of our sin, the law was a terrible husband. A terrifying husband. But now by grace, we belong to the husband who daily gives of himself to us, both now and into eternity. What Paul means for you to see, Christian brother or sister, is that belonging to Christ, not the law, has a profound effect on your life right here, right now. Look at verse 4 one more time. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that, here's the result, here's the result in order that we may bear fruit for God. Friends, there's an order that Paul gives in all this that's just enormously important for us to get. The Jews thought, as so many people think today, that law-keeping was the way to bear fruit for God. Keep the law, bear fruit. I've got to just be the best person I can be. I've just got to keep the code, and that'll get God's attention in His favor. Paul says it's the exact opposite. You can only bear spiritual fruit that honors and glorified God because you're united by faith to Jesus who won for you God's attention and favor for all eternity. You only bear fruit when you belong to Him. Friends, if you get this order wrong in your mind, you miss the gospel. You miss Christianity. You miss salvation. One of the biggest misconceptions about Christianity that people have is the idea that Christianity is just a moral code that people live by. That Christians somewhere along the way, for some odd reason that can't be explained, decided to cut out the the pleasurable sins, the really big and bad sins, and start living a moral life. Because that's what they think Christianity is. They assume that Christians, that we Christians just must think that we're better than everyone else, right? Because we've chosen to live according to that moral code. And yeah, I'd probably be pretty proud of myself if that's what Christianity was all about, right? I'd take pride in my, rea- in my morality. If I'm the one who cleans myself up and keeps the code, right, then I've got a good reason to look down on all of those who don't keep the code as I have. Friends, if that's your view of Christians, let me assure you, <laughs> let me assure you this morning, you are sitting in the midst of a group of people who feel that we have done a pretty lousy, pathetic job of keeping God's law, okay? We have found salvation, not because we've kept a set of rules, but because Jesus kept every last one of them, right? We're trusting him to take the curse and penalty of our law breaking, our rule breaking. That 
to just demolish any sense of superiority in our lives. We don't think we're better than you because we're Christians and, and, and you're not. We're simply astounded by the grace of God in Christ toward us, that Christ loved us unto death. And what we want more than anything for you is for you to turn from your sin and embrace this Jesus by faith so that you might know that grace too. Now, what does all of this mean practically for you as a Christian? Because clearly Paul isn't concerned with our justification, whether God has declared us guilty or innocent. He's concerned with our sanctification, whether or not we're bearing fruit for God and growing to look more and more each day like Jesus. Well, the way that Paul gets at this is by first encouraging us to consider the fruit of our life when we belong to the law. Look at verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, which is just Paul's way of saying our old sin-dominated man before we belonged to Jesus, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Okay, so what was the fruit of your old marriage to the law? It bore fruit that led straight to death. It promised this feast your sin did under the law. It promised this feast of joy and life, but it turned out to be a banquet in the grave. Why? Because our sinful desires were aroused by the law. Friends, the law does not prevent you from sinning. To the contrary, without the miracle of grace, the law makes sin come alive in your heart. The law makes demands of us, but gives us no inherent ability to obey it. In fact, when we hear the demands of the law in our sin and rebellion, we want to do just the opposite of what it demands. By itself, the law is merely an accomplice to the crimes against God our sinful hearts long to commit, and it produces the fruit of death and judgment as a consequence. That's life under this kind of old regime, the law, Paul says. And here's what it looks like now that you belong to Christ. Verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Okay, the end of chapter 6 was all about our release from the slavery of the power of sin. If you missed that sermon, it's on the website. You can check it out. If sin was the taskmaster, Paul says, well, then the law was the henchman that enforced our bondage. But now... Christ has set us free from both, okay? And under this new regime where God's grace reigns, not the law, we serve in an entirely new way by his spirit. We don't, we don't live by an external code written on stone tablets. Oh, we live through a new covenant in which the spirit writes God's law on our very hearts, right? Fulfilling God's promise in the Old Testament in scriptures like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 about this transforming work that God's Spirit will do in the new covenant. The Spirit literally transforms us from the inside out and gives us a heart that wants to obey God, wants to worship Him, wants to look like Jesus, wants to pursue holiness where once we just ran hard after our sin. Let me look, or let me direct your attention to just two applications in light of what Paul has been saying thus far, okay? Two applications. Friends, 
Brothers and sisters, embrace your freedom from the law's demands. Embrace your freedom from the law's demands. Beloved, so many Christians, even though they know their sins are forgiven through the death of Christ, they live practically that they've got to earn God's love. Every day they, they get up and they feel like they don't, you know, if they don't have a quiet time for so long, if they're not doing X, Y, Z in their Christian life, well, they're just letting God down. He's like the hard to please father who never thinks his kid is doing enough. And so to get his attention, I've just got to try harder. I've got to do more. And when I fail, I just pray to God that my brokenness somehow softens the Lord to love me again. Well, then I know that that's how some of you view the Christian life. That is not the life that Christ died for you to live. Christ has set you free from the law's demands. You know what you have to do now to earn God's favor and grace? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, if you try to do otherwise, you've drifted off into legalism and self-righteousness. Because you're united by faith to Jesus. God loves you like he loves Christ. When God looks at a Christian, he doesn't see Nate the lawbreaker. He doesn't see Aaliyah the lawbreaker. He doesn't see Jason the lawbreaker. He looks at us and he sees Jesus, the law keeper. He sees us through the lens of the righteousness of the spotless Lamb of God. And that should not only thrill your soul and cause you to erupt in thanksgiving, it should cause you to rest fully in what Christ has done. Let me give you this morning in your zeal to honor God, which is commendable. You live your life as you've always got to do more and achieve more. I'm not just not reading my Bible enough. I'm not, I'm not evangelizing enough. I'm not teaching my homeschool kids well enough. I'm not discipling my kids well enough. I'm not serving in the church enough. It's this constant barrage of guilt on your soul. Friends, don't get me wrong. Faithful believers are active believers. We need to be renewing our inner person through the word and prayer. We need to be sharing the good news and being faithful where God has called us uh, to. But there is a fine line. Listen. There's a fine line between grace-fueled effort and grace-seeking effort. Between an unrestful soul that thinks I've got to do X, Y, Z in order to be at rest and a soul resting in Christ that moves outward toward others in the power of His Holy Spirit. Some of you this morning just need to hear the word of your life this morning. You are not bound to the law. You belong to Christ. And you just need to relax in that goodness. Remember that God loves you through Christ. You're not bound to the law. And you line up your thinking with that gracious reality. It just might revolutionize your life. Number two, second application. Tend to your heart. Tend to your heart. Beloved, we need to remember that the Christian life is not a religion where external adherence to rules and regulations is what matters. The new covenant has radically internalized the law so that what God's Spirit wants to do is not merely modify your behavior, not merely that you just keep the law of Christ outwardly, but steadily He's transforming you, the real you on the inside. He wants to change your heart. The Holy Spirit wants to shape things like your desires and your attitudes and your thoughts. 
He wants the very core of who you are on the inside to reflect what you present to people on the outside. Jesus frequently warned against the dangers of of hypocrisy where outward religious observance masks inner spiritual decay. Beloved, what are you doing to cultivate the humility and honesty necessary to address your inner man? What relationships are you pursuing that help you tend to your heart? What means of grace are you utilizing on a regular basis, both the individual means of grace in the word and prayer, but also the corporate means of grace in the fellowship of the saints and the communal sharing of the life that we have together in the Lord? Is your concept of the Christian life, oh, just me and Jesus, I'll just do my best, I guess. Or do you see growth in Christ as a community project in the context of the local church? where we help one another tend to our hearts. Do you see Christianity as a relationship with the living God? Or if you're honest, has it become like the trappings, the rituals of dead religion? Are you engaged in the activities, but your heart has drifted? Brothers and sisters, tend to your hearts. Praise God, you're not bound to the law. You belong to Christ by His Spirit. Number two, the law isn't the problem. Your sin is. The law isn't the problem. Your sin is. Both points in the outline, again, just summarize the main thrust of each section, trying to make it clear for us, okay? Paul says a lot of things in verses 7 to 12, but you can just sum it up in two simple statements. The law is not the problem. Your sin is. Right? Say it with me. The law is not the problem. Your sin is. My sin is. You easily imagine how the Jews might respond to Paul. Well, okay, Paul, if we're no longer bound to the law, but dead to it, if the law arouses sinful passions, well, then you must think that the law is the source of sin and evil, that it's inherently bad. Right, Paul? To the Jews, God's law was was everything. Just think of how David sang about the delight that Israel should find in the law. In Psalm 19, Psalm 119, he wrote that the law was what? more precious than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. That's what the law is to the heart made new. That's a life-giving law, Paul, not a death-giving law. Do you think the law is evil? Paul answers that would-be objection in verse 7. What shall we say then? The law is sin? By no means. Again, that's Paul's no way, man. By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So Paul says the law isn't the source of sin, but it does expose sin for what it is. Like if I do something that's selfish, it's selfish whether someone's told me not to be selfish or not, right? But if God tells me it's wrong to be selfish and I go right ahead in my selfishness, my selfishness is seen clearly to be wrong. That's what Paul is getting at at the end of verse 7. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, God's good law prohibits me to lust after something or, or someone else that be- belongs to somebody else, right? But what happens when I hear that prohibition against coveting? 
Well, my sinful heart, what it does, it co-ops that law, that command, and it sets up a base of operations to win more ground for my sin. You might call it the forbidden fruit syndrome, right? It's as old as the Garden of Eden. We want what we're told we shouldn't want. The law not only exposes our sin for what it is, what it, is it provokes us to sin more, is what Paul's saying. The church father, Augustine, writes of this tendency of the human heart in his confessions of his life before Christ. Augustine writes, there was a pear tree in our vineyard loaded with fruit that was attractive neither to look at nor to taste. Late one night, a band of ruffians, myself included, went off to shake down the fruit and carry it away. We took away an enormous quantity of pears, not to eat them ourselves, but simply to throw them to the pigs. Perhaps we ate some of them, but our real pleasure consisted in doing something that was forbidden. I had no wish to enjoy the things I coveted by stealing, but only to enjoy the theft itself and the sin. I love the real culprit isn't the prohibition not to covet, but that our sin is hostile to God's law. Sin is the culprit. The law is functioning in the way it's supposed to when it reveals my sin. But, but Paul says, what Paul says is that, is that my, my sinful heart, your sinful heart, my heart is so warped that it twists God's law from discouraging sin to encouraging it. I'm so sinful that I want to use God's holy law as an ally to my sin to sin more and more and more. Paul describes this unholy alliance between sin and the law even more graphically at the end of verse 8. Look at it together at the end of verse 8. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Friends, Paul here is giving the personal testimony of his relationship to the law in his pre-Christ life. And yet the way he describes it, it sounds a lot like he might be talking about Adam or Israel, doesn't it? Think about it. Adam was the only human truly alive spiritually apart from the law, right? Adam is the only one who ever lived apart from the law in the very beginning. But when God's commandment came not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin came to life, as it were, in Adam, and he died. Same thing with Israel. Israel's sin was put into hyperdrive after they received the Torah. They became fast and furious transgressors of the law. I think what Paul is doing is highlighting that his experience pre-Christ is the experience of every man and every woman throughout history. That is every man but one. God's commandments are meant to give us life if we could keep them perfectly, but we can't and we won't. Paul once thought that he had true life apart from the law, but once he realized that the law had been co-opted by his sin, he realizes, oh no, the law only kills. You can see in verse 8 to 11, Paul pictures sin like a snoozing animal. Did you see that? It's like a sleeping dragon. Paul says, sin lied dead. 
It came to life. It deceived me. It killed me. Imagine a man in a castle dungeon tied to a dragon. Right? The dragon's name is sin. But then one day a knight in shining armor makes a heroic attempt to free the man from the dragon. The brave knight's name is commandment. The knight rushes into the castle and commands the man to, to get up immediately and kill the ja- dragon, slay the dragon, set yourself free. But guess what happens next? The dragon's sin does not want to be killed. And it happens to be way more powerful than the man. So if it comes down to the dragon's life or the man's life, well, you know who's about to be toast. The commandment awakened the dragon who killed the man. Paul concludes in verse 12, don't you see it's not the law that's evil. It's us. It's our sin. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. God's holy law demonstrates God's holy character. It accomplishes God's good purpose in driving us to Jesus Christ, our great law keeper and transgression forgiver. He's the only one who can slay the dragon. Beloved, this passage is designed to highlight the evil and horror and perversity of sin while at the same time highlighting the beauty of grace. Where would you be? Where would you be if God had not intervened? What would your life look like if He had not stepped in to rescue you from sin and the law? My friends, may we live each day in the freedom that Christ has won. Freedom from the law to serve by the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace in our life. We praise you for the rescuing power of Christ who broke the chains of the law and broke the chains of sin and death. Oh, Lord, I pray that we as the saints of Redeeming Grace Church might live in that reality. Oh, Father, may you do that work within us. Oh, Father, may we realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that that if we've come to Christ by faith, we belong to him now. And the Spirit is now working within us to bear fruit for righteousness, fruit that leads to eternal life. Oh, Father, may we rest in Christ. Oh, Lord, help us not to strive according to the code of law. Help us to live out what you've called us to be and called us to do through the power of your Holy Spirit as a glad response to your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name.